Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. When the Advocate comes, the Paraclete comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me and... You also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture from the 16th chapter as well as we get an idea of where we are going with the sermon this morning. As a matter of fact, that chapter division is very awkward. We realize that the Bible was divided into chapters for convenience sake, and this was not the way that John wrote this. He just wrote it as a continuous narrative. But take that chapter division out of there, and you see how this really flows together. And so John continues to record the words of Jesus, All this I have told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I have warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father or you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So you see two times here Jesus has referred to the Holy Spirit as being the one who is coming, the advocate who is coming, and he's also defined the role of the Holy Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit plays an important part of the ministry of Christ's disciples immediately following his Uh, ascension into heaven, as well as continues to be an important part of our ministry for Jesus even today. And then Jesus goes back and picks up that theme that we have just finished from the 15th chapter about the intense persecution that is going to come to his followers. And then we marry the two concepts together to understand that the Holy Spirit has a vital role in being with us during the time of the persecution that Christians can and do and will face. Now, let me just 
have a few words about the persecution because I preached an entire sermon on this last week just to wrap that up, and then I'll get over to the role of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in the context that John wrote this gospel to meet the needs of his culture and his people. He had a specific message in mind in writing his gospel. That's the reason his gospel is not like the gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke. He had a totally different purpose in mind in writing this, and particularly in just placing Jesus out there as the Son of God in such a prominent position. As I've said before in this series, that's the reason the Gospel of John is an excellent work for new believers, because they get an understanding of Jesus, who he is, what his purpose was. So John's readers would connect with this section in which Jesus warns his disciples about persecution they're going to face, because when John wrote this, John's contemporaries were experiencing persecution for their Christianity. This is all in its infancy. They were hearing this gospel, the good news of the kingdom, this message of Jesus, the Son of God who came to earth, walked among us, and was crucified, and rose again, ascended into heaven, and they became believers in it. And when they began to follow that, persecution happened. So when John wrote this, and they were being persecuted, they were very interested in what John had to say to them about, about what was going on in their life within 30 years of the death and the resurrection of Christ. The persecutors were leveling slanderous charges against Christians. And I'll just give you a few of these that they were charging the Christians with. Number one, they were claiming that the Christians were responsible for political insurrection because they were running around saying, Christ is risen. And the, uh, the government of Rome was, was threatened by that. You know, he was their king. He's establishing a kingdom. Number two, there were rumors around, running around about Christians that they were cannibals. After all, Jesus had left this cryptic message about eat my body, drink my blood. And so they were having this little ceremony where they were passing the bread and passing the cup and, and reading uh, and remembering the words of Jesus, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is the New Testament in the cup, drink all of it. And so you know how the world can take just a, a piece of something and turn it into anything they want to turn it into? So they were accusing them of cannibalism, anything to discredit this new movement called Christianity. Number three, they were accusing the Christians of immorality because they were having what was called these love feasts. And you know what the world did with that? They said they're down there having orgies. Then they accused them of being incendiaries because they were interpreting the message that the Christians were believing in and preaching that the world was going to come to a fiery end. And so they were saying, see, these Christians are just wanting to run around setting fire to things. And then it was so convenient that when Rome burned, who do you think Nero blamed? 
It's that bunch of people that keeps talking about wanting to burn everything up. Now, it's all very perverted, but it's all very believable because it still happens today as people take a strain of truth from, from Christianity and twist it into something very perverted and then try and make us look bad. And then a final example is that they blamed Christians for ultimately the breakup of the family. In the cases where the wife was converted, but the husband was not converted, oftentimes what happened was the family was split. So guess whose fault that was? If it weren't for these Christians, the family would still be together. They were constantly blamed for things they were not really responsible for. So whenever John records these words for his readers to read, where Jesus has said, if you choose to follow me, you're going to be persecuted. His readers were reading this with great interest. So that's what's happening to us. And then Jesus says the Holy Spirit will have a definite role in the time when you're going to be persecuted. As trying as it was going to be to make an effort to live for Jesus, the disciples are going to have a helper, a paraclete, an advocate. The Holy Spirit would be there in three ways to help them through these troublous times. First of all, he would testify of Jesus to the world. See, without the Holy Spirit prepping the hearts of men and women ahead of us, our message falls on deaf ears. So he is testifying of Christ to prepare the way for us. In so doing, the number two thing is the Holy Spirit would guide evangelism and missions. We're seeing a wonderful example of that in the Bible when Philip was driven from the persecution that arose in Jerusalem and ended up in Samaria, had a great revival, but the Holy Spirit guided him and, and down to where there was just a single man, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, in the desert and ministered him, and then the Spirit carried him away as the Spirit was definitely guiding evangelism in missions in that instance, and he has not stopped doing that. And then the final thing the Holy Spirit would do in the time of persecution would help strengthen and encourage the disciples in the midst of all of their trials. He would remind them of the words that Jesus spoke. It's not going to be easy, but the mission will ultimately be successful. Saul was a, an avowed persecutor of the young church, going from house to house, arresting and imprisoning men and women alike. He was ruthless and he was proud of it. And as Jesus had said, there's actually going to come a time when people are going to persecute you and think that they are pleasing God while doing it. Saul was such a person. He thought he was doing God's work in killing the Christians. Jesus warned his disciples specifically that their persecutors would have this perverted idea that somehow they were waging a Christian jihad a holy war, and pleasing God. He warned them specifically, your life's going to change radically. You will not be allowed to worship in your synagogues. That's, that's all they knew about worshiping. The church, as a separate entity from the synagogues, hadn't, it was in its infancy. It hadn't fully developed. 
converted Jews were still going back to their synagogues. But now the synagogue was divided because there were people who believed that the, the, the person of Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior and others who rejected it. So the synagogues were divided. And eventually, the old Jews who controlled the synagogue kicked out the converted Jews. And Where did they have to go? Their lives were put in turmoil. And then Jesus said, the Holy Spirit that I'm going to send, this will be his role, this will be his task. And you have to grasp the dynamics of the moment. Jesus returning to this topic of the Holy Spirit, but the disciples having very little understanding of exactly what this is all about. What's this Holy Spirit going to do? Because they've never understood being led by the Holy Spirit in their religion in the past. They did, they did understand the physical presence of Jesus, but they didn't understand the unseen presence of the Holy Spirit, and they couldn't imagine how the Holy Spirit that you can't see, feel, touch, no tangible thing about him, is going to come anywhere close to fulfilling what Jesus was fulfilling for them, providing for them. This was all mysterious. We see it so clearly. But they couldn't get their brain wrapped around it. How is this Holy Spirit going to take your place? How is this invisible Holy Spirit going to replace the visible Christ? And Jesus said he's going to take over as the paraclete. Of course, Jesus himself was a paraclete as well, but he's going to send another paraclete, another comforter, another advocate. And the Spirit is going to strengthen you and encourage you and empower you and he's going to serve as your entire resource. And at the time that Jesus spoke this, John didn't fully understand what Jesus was promising. But by the time John wrote the words and put in this gospel, he understood it. And now he's trying to help his readers understand it. And this is the fourth time that Jesus has referred to the coming paraclete. So it must have been an important thing, right? Four times. I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm going to send you the paraclete. So he first gives the outline, and then he fleshes it out. He says when he comes, he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And then the scripture that follows that fleshes that out. The familiar King James Version, if that's your favorite, says he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Doesn't quite open this up for us. I don't quite get the full picture of what he's trying to say with the wording that the King James Version provided. He's going to convict the world. And we struggle with this passage. The NIV is a little more wordy as it tries to bring out the essence of this. He will prove the world to be in the wrong. Now, both of these are a little bit limited attempts to describe the Greek word that has a much broader definition than our, any of our English translations convey. And uh, just take a quick look at the variety of translations of this one passage, and you will find that one translation uses the word reprove. The King James Version used the word convict. Another one used the word convince. Another one prove. Convict, prove wrong. 
So the fact that the translators offered so many varieties, they were trying to capture this. What is he saying? So we go back to the NIV that is a little more wordy, not just relying on a single word to translate that, but a, a, a whole phrase to expand this out. The spirit of truth. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will prove the world to be in the wrong. We've probably never looked at this passage like this. Why is the Holy Spirit proving the world wrong about anything? Well, Jesus said what his role is going to be is going to be like an attorney in a courtroom where the world is on the witness stand. And he's being charged. The world is being charged. And the Holy Spirit is this advocate, this attorney, who is bringing accusations against the world. Now, if you were here last week, you will remember that Jesus used the term world, and we put that in context. We understand that the world was everybody who was not believing in Jesus, not following Jesus. So that's the world, the non-believers. Some of them can be converted. Some of them will not be converted. They resist. They refuse. But we put the world on the chair, on the witness stand, and we bring out this prosecutor, the Holy Spirit, and he goes to work on the world. And he rolls up his sleeves and he basically says, my job here is to prove you wrong in your understanding of three things. You're wrong about sin, you're wrong about righteousness, and you're wrong about judgment. That's the important point I want to make today. The Holy Spirit proved the case years ago. We don't want to forget that landmark case. We don't want to ignore what he accomplished when he put the world on the stand and said, you think you know about sin, you don't know diddly about sin. You think you understand righteousness, you don't have the big first concept about righteousness. You think you know all about judgment, but I'm here to tell you, you don't know anything about judgment. And he rolls this out. That's what we're going to focus on today. Because the world gets it wrong. They get it wrong about sin. Because, Jesus said, because they don't believe in me. That's the reason they get it wrong. In other words, Jesus is the fundamental touch point. If you take Jesus out of the equation, there's no way of understanding sin. He is the ultimate reference point for getting it right. They don't have a reference point. The world doesn't believe in Jesus. That's the reason they don't understand sin. First of all, they don't acknowledge sin as it is clearly defined by God. 
They excuse it. They rationalize it. They normalize it. They classify it. They call it organic behavior. It's just natural. It's just whatever comes natural. Whatever you feel like doing. It's okay because you were born that way. It feels good. Go for it. They don't understand sin. The Holy Spirit, that's his accusation before the world. You don't understand it. You don't get it. They dress it in cloaks of things like rights and free choice. And they celebrate it. They hate to acknowledge that sin is morally offensive. To them, to the world, the sin is not sin. It is anything but sin. To the world, sin is an alternate lifestyle. To them, it's not sin. It's this freedom to express your love any way you desire with whomever you desire, wherever you desire, or with whatever you desire. It's not sin, it's the courage to openly be yourself. It's not murder, it's not killing babies, it's a right and it's a choice. It's not adultery, it's an affair. It's not drunkenness, it's chemical dependency. It's not stealing, it's misappropriation. It's not lying, it's misspeaking. It's not cheating, it's creative problem solving. It's not pride, it's self-assurance. Whatever God calls sin, the world seems bent on downplaying and making it harmless, normal behavior, a choice that others have a right to that we should not deny them. Ellison Research found, shockingly enough, that only 45% of Americans believe that premarital sex is a sin. And only 30% believe gambling is a sin. And while scoffing at God's list of sins and calling it antiquated, and saying that it's hostile to the freedom of choice, the world has oddly enough created their own list of sins by which they judge everybody else. And here are a few of the things that the world calls sin. I've heard extreme vegans say it's a sin to eat meat. I've heard animal rights activists say it's a sin to wear leather or hunt game, or destroy the egg of an endangered bird. I've heard environmentalists say it's a sin to cut down a tree. It's a sin to leave a carbon footprint. One man described the modern world's modern view of sin as being nothing more than bringing cheap wine to a party. What a sin that is. And today, sin has become nothing more in this world than failure to meet the world's expectations on social issues. So no wonder, years ago, the Holy Spirit stepped up and said, I have come here and my purpose is to put the world on the chair and to bring the conviction against them. You don't understand sin. You don't get it. 
He says, neither do you understand righteousness, which is very closely related to the subject of sin, because if they don't understand, obviously, if they don't understand sin, they certainly don't understand righteousness. We can't just talk about the world's perverted concepts of sin and get the whole picture. You have to address the world's perverted concept of righteousness as well. In Christ's day, the Pharisees sold themselves to the world around them as being the original righteous brothers. And the world began to buy into it. Every time they'd see Pharisees, they had been brainwashed into thinking, those people sure are righteous. Aren't they righteous? They're the most righteous people. And the Pharisees, of course we're righteous. We're more righteous than you are. And so they peddle themselves as having a corner on the market of righteousness. And Jesus looked at them and said, you don't get it. He told the others in reference to the Pharisees, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. They have no righteousness. You've got to do better than them. The world got it wrong. They still get it wrong. People today equate righteousness, if you'll just think about it, with popularity and success. You say, I wonder how they do that. Well, just think about it for a minute. We know of rock stars and Hollywood stars who have come to the tragic end of their life after years of living a life of reckless self-destruction. And when they die, they are eulogized as heroes and worshipped by their fans as the greatest people who have ever lived. They are elevated as being righteous, good people. Look what they have done for the world. But they don't look at their lifestyle. They don't look at the destruction because the world doesn't understand righteousness. It has to do with how popular you are and how much people worshipped you. The world's become quite adept at separating a person's accomplishments from their personal life. If they win an Oscar, or if they set a record in sports, or they had a series of hit songs, what does it matter what their personal life, if it was a moral mess? The world grants them sainthood based on their accomplishments. God has a different take on righteousness. Isaiah said, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. There is nothing we can accomplish that impresses God. Paul came to that same conclusion. He had this impressive resume. He said, look at me, what I used to be. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. And this is his resume. And boy, did he feel good about himself until he ran into Jesus and found out all of his righteousness is like filthy rags. And then when he discovered Jesus and discovered he couldn't do anything good enough to earn God's favor, he said, I counted all those things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He said in the third chapter of Philippians, I consider them garbage so that I may gain Christ. Because the world doesn't get it about righteousness. The reason the world gets it wrong is they think righteousness is earned. They think they can worship deeply flawed men and women who have great earthly accomplishments and despise 
at the same time, the flawed Christian who knows only the righteousness that is found through Jesus Christ. I can't be righteous enough for Jesus. I have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's through him that I lay any claim to righteousness. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit said in the world, gets it wrong about judgment. And the uh, addendum to that is, he says, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Of course the world gets it wrong. First of all, they're following the wrong leader. The leader, the prince of this world, has already been judged. He has no chance of winning. How is it he has any followers? Who follows a guaranteed loser? Who joins a lost cause? Would you? But the prince of the world's already been judged. And people continue to follow the one who's already been condemned as having lost the battle. How does this work? Second, they don't understand God's judgment because... They cannot reconcile God as both a God of love and a God of judgment. They mistakenly believe that the two attributes are mutually exclusive. As a result, they would rather believe in a God of love who would never send anybody to hell or they would believe that God is this angry despot in heaven that has no capacity to be able to love or care for us. They can't bring the two together because the world doesn't understand judgment. And as a result, the world doubts that God will ever judge this world. If they believed he was going to judge this world, they wouldn't live like they're living. They don't believe he's ever going to do anything about it. He either doesn't exist or he doesn't care or he's not that kind of God. And if you try and tell the world God's coming back someday and he's going to destroy the Antichrist and his army with the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming, if you try and tell them that someday that all this political nonsense is going to be over and the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to come and set up the rule with a rod of iron and it's going to be his way and no other way and he won't tolerate the, the, those who, who uh, campaign against him and march and protest. He won't be tolerated. He's going to set the law. You try and tell them they think you're a wild-eyed idiot belonging to some cult somewhere. But we believe Jesus is coming again someday. Our hope is in his return. We know this world is going downhill, but it won't be all the way gone before Jesus comes back and says, I've come back to set things right again. And Peter recorded with a prophetic eye what people will say in the last days. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the time of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. 
And that is the skepticism of the world. Oh, you Christians have been running around here for generations and decades and centuries talking about Jesus is coming back. Nothing has changed. He's not coming back. See, that's the skepticism that Peter was referring to. They don't believe because they don't understand judgment. The world just doesn't get it. They're wrong in their understanding of sin. They're wrong in their understanding of righteousness. They're wrong in their understanding of God's judgment. And unfortunately, the world just somehow succeeds in still recruiting multitudes and millions of disciples to follow their false teachings, but they're wrong. And the reason that we study this today is because the world is very convincing and very influential. And people who begin to buy into the world's version of sin and righteousness and judgment, they got it wrong too. The only way we can keep it right is to go back to God's Word. The world doesn't understand it. Quit believing the lies of the world. Quit believing their perverted versions. Quit believing what they define is good and right and holy and what they call evil. Quit looking at their topsy-turvy uh, philosophies of this world. That They are lying to you. They are wrong. They were proven wrong by the Holy Spirit ages ago, and he's still proving them wrong today. They're not winning. They're not right. They, they, they got the whole thing messed up. And your brain's going to be scattered if you try and follow and understand them. You've got to go back to God's Word. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come to define the difference between the world's mistaken notions and the truth of God. Because Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth. Now the spirit of truth is here today. He's still at work. He hasn't lost any effectiveness or any power. He's still there. And, and those people who, who from time to time will tune their ear to the Holy Spirit will begin to understand that the world is feeding them a bunch of lies, that there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no happiness in pursuing your own direction. There is no joy and peace until you come to peace with Jesus Christ. The world pitches its lies, but the Holy Spirit is still the heavenly prosecutor. He comes to accuse this world of blindness, ignorance, and rebellion. We can avoid being brainwashed by this world if we will cherish and value the counsel and the direction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He makes his case against this world. If we follow his counsel, we can avoid being pulled into the world's demented way of thinking. But we need the counsel of the Holy Spirit today as much, if not more, than ever before in our life. The state of this world is growing worse every day. The last days are prophesied to be worse than in the beginning. We need the Holy Spirit's guidance. We need his wisdom. We need his counsel. We need his help. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you. Would you bow your heads?